Welcome to another uh, exceptional edition of the brand new uh, second installment of uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Um, I'm here with uh, my compadre, uh, Jay Blake. Happy to be here as always. It's uh, uh, it's late on a Saturday night. Yes, and we've stayed up all (laughs) night long again. Uh, We just watched a classic. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's definitely... It definitely works to be the second one in our series that we're going to be, this never-ending series. This can go on as long as we can stay up late. <laughs> 80-year-old. Yeah, yeah, still, still. It's we're just here, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> it's late for us. <laughs> uh, we watched, um, well, we're going to profile this week for uh, Saturday Sleepovers, The Incomparable. Uh, I think I've already used that word already. Um, John, word. John Carpenter's uh, Big Trouble in Little China from 1986. Uh, a lot going on in this movie. Uh, Jay Blake, and, and it's actually ironic and fitting that I sit down and talk to you about it because uh, one, being you being a huge John Carpenter aficionado, two, you've actually interviewed John Carpenter, three, big Kurt Russell fan, <laughs> four, love, love Kurt Russell, uh, big fi- a big fan of uh, movie scores and and John Carpenter's in particular and his Coupe de Ville's, yeah, and five, I think just prior to you even liking or being into John Carpenter, this is this movie's also kind of had a special place in your heart too, hasn't it? To a certain extent, I mean, uh, it, for me as well. But yeah, well, th- yeah, it, uh, John Carp. My story with my story with John Carpenter begins with uh, in that I don't know somewhere in high school. Me and my friends watched In the Mouth of Madness when it came out. Uh, it was in probably a new release on, yeah. on VHS. Likely a sleepover. Actually, probably a birthday sleepover. <sighs> Those are the big ones. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we watched that movie, and it just completely like floored me. And I loved the music so much. That opening theme to In the Mouth is so intense. and um, So much so that I went out and I bought the the soundtrack on CD. And... I'm the kind of guy that once I find something that I kind of like, then like I need to know everything about it. Yeah, of course. So then I started researching John Carpenter. And, you know, for me, I didn't have the internet yet at home, but I'd be like in the library. Kind of prodigy. <laughs> you know, like up. on uh, American you Online. Know, during like, you know, uh, what's it, study hall or whatever. And I'd be like looking up at John Carpenter. And then it's like looking at his filmography, I realized how many movies that he had made that were like so important to me that like I never really knew who made I didn't know who made it um the thing kind of was one that but then later we we kind of rediscovered it together on on your recommendation um Christine was a movie that I remembered from when I was little um Big Trouble in Little China was was definitely one I remember sitting this was before um we moved up to the Albany area and I was living in Philadelphia. And I remember sitting in cafeteria at like Catholic school 
and me and this kid starts talking about Big Trouble in Little China. I was like, oh, man, Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> like, I had seen it a couple of times on, like, HBO or something at my dad's house. Yeah. And uh, nobody else knew what the hell we were talking about. But we were you know, shooting the shit about Big Trouble in Little China. And I remember we took, like, um, you know, you take, like, the the foil that a Kit Kat comes in. Yeah. And you make, you make, like, a Chinese fan out of it. And it's, like, it's foil, so it's shiny. And we were, prote- we were like playing wow. like big trouble little china with it and then later prince of darkness was a movie that me and my buddies watched uh they live was always a big one because of uh, good old rowdy rowdy piper um so then i saw in the mouth of madness discovered that john carpenter had made all these movies that m- really meant something to me and then from then on i was kind of a john carpenter nut it's it's, it's interesting that even in if you're not so much a John Carpenter fan, uh, I, I couldn't really call myself a John Carpenter fan prior to college, but uh, his early catalog has affected me so much. Like, uh, certainly, I mean, we'll probably cover it in an upcoming uh, podcast, but like Assault on Precinct 13, I still have nightmares yeah, yeah. of that whole sequence with the girl in, 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 the, in the ice cream truck. And anytime, anytime I hear an ice cream truck going by, I think of either Maximum Overdrive or I think of Assault on Precinct 13. <laughs> and uh, Halloween, certainly. Uh, Halloween yeah. 2, because that got played on cable a lot when we were a kid. The thing was, like you said, there's a huge movie for me when I was very young. And then Christine scared the shit out of me, like that opening scene on the assembly line. Yeah, or, yeah. or the girl getting stuck in the car. Or the, all the lines that are quotable, like, you're going to need these to start her up. Or well, I always have this funny story <laughs> about Christine. And I don't even know if I've even, I might have already even recited it on like a sidecast or something, but I remember. Which is at uh, podwits.com, so please check out <laughs> Jay Blake and I, where we do shameful uh, promotions, <laughs> or we do a sidecast, so please I check mean, it out. We did one about video stores and, and stuff, and I might have talked about it in there, but um, when I was little, my dad had a VCR, and I didn't know it, it was like this magic machine, and I didn't know anybody else that had one or whatever, and we would go to Rite Aid and rent movies, and I remember one night we rented my brother, who's older than me, and my dad, they rented Christine, and they put it on, and we were going to watch it. And this goes to, like, I don't know why there was no restrictions on the things I was shown when I was little, but, they really, but there really me. weren't. It was a different time. <laughs> you know, we were able to go outside and, and, and play And it turned dark. out okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that opening scene comes, uh, you know, starts, and they're building Christine, and it's on the assembly line, and it crushes the guy's hand, and I was little. I mean, that came out in, like, I don't know, 83, 84? Yeah, 84, because uh, the thing is 82. So it came up between that and Big Trouble, so it must have been like 83. So, you know, I was fucking, I was young, and I, I kind of freaked out, and I remember I left the room, and my dad and my brother, like, knelt down to be my height, and I could still picture it in my mind. They convinced me to stay and watch the movie by telling me that Christine was like Kit from Knight Rider. And that made it all right. <laughs> I watched it. Yeah, you're like, okay, you understood now. It's kind of like, all right. <laughs> it's real freaky because I don't, I haven't seen Christine in a, in a good uh, 10, it's 20 years. It's, to be honest, and I, it's just probably a controversial statement, and I've said it before, I think it's one of his best directed movies. Yeah. Um, aside from maybe The Thing. Yeah. Christine is really, and I don't even think he likes it very much. But it's just he just directed the hell out of that movie. But there's they don't ever really explain the car, do they? What is it? A Fury, I think it is. Uh, whatever, whatever. Um, yeah, the uh, it looks like a like a Caddy or a, or a Bel Air uh, Chevrolet, but it's not. I think it's a Fury, like a late fifties. Uh, but they never explain why this car is possessed, right? There's just some sort of demon. It's kind of like a. Um, 
one of those, I guess, like the the Irish, the Puka legend or whatever, where it's like just like there's some sort of yeah, it's just demon like or something they or assemble entity. It, yeah, he just gets in something gets into the car, be, and it's a story about like obsession. It's just it's a really th- it has you know it has l- things that aren't very strong about it, and that like like the bully in high school is like clearly like thirty five. <laughs> well, that, but that was par <laughs> par and parcel back then. You, you get know? people who were like you know the kids um, are they're supposed to be in high school, and but Keith in Gordon. 20s. Great fucking performance by Keith Gordon. Um, John Stockwell gives a great performance. All those people went on to like be direct, really good directors, yeah, producers and stuff. Yeah. And um, but so Carpenter, big deal, big trouble. Um, definitely another movie uh, which is gonna is you know not without uh, reason. Very nostalgic for us. I mean, that's a lot of what this kind of show is about. Yeah, it's about just remembering nostalgia for us. And And also, I guess, movies that people kind of pass or or let go by. And, you you know, we we can shine a light and say, hey, these are actually really good. And you should take them for just more than what they are or just, you know, as they're sillier. Yeah, you you know, know, it's... Because One Side, Big Trouble is just the silliest movie you've ever seen. It's very silly. And to be honest, there's stuff in it that is... There are scenes, like dialogue exchanges and stuff, that honestly, like, and you know, no one loves Carpenter more than I do, but they're just not good. I mean, they're fine; they work for the movie, but it's like sometimes you feel like I feel like I'm watching like me and my friends in high school. But see, I wonder if some of that's on purpose because now you get if if we're getting into like uh, the 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 performances and stuff, uh, you know, like I, th- it seems like a lot of it I- is done. You know, for the sake of being hokey or hammy, yeah. But it's also Kurt like Russell's uh, performance. It's th- it's the it's the acting, but it's also like the blocking, and there's more to it than just performance. That I felt like really was almost like cringeworthy. Um, but like I said, it works for the movie, so it's not really a huge deal. And the movie works on like so many other like really fucking crazy levels. Um, but maybe we should. Get into yeah, really get into really get into this. What potatoes. we have to say about <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, about we're the really movie and its history and we're getting uh we're we're we're, we're taking our time getting into it. Like we're we're hitting everything else uh, than what we we should be. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China came out in uh, 1986. Uh, like we said, John Carpenter directed. Has a slew of great a great great cast in it. Uh, a lot a lot of good people. And uh, basically, the I guess to sum it up. Uh, if you want to go to imdb.com, they just say an all-American trucker gets dragged into a centuries-old mystical battle in Chinatown. I guess that just kind of sums it up. That's it in a nutshell. Uh, I mean, but we, there's as, so as much we, nuances. As we, as we talk, we'll, you know, we'll probably get more into th- some of the finer points of the plot. But um, Kurt Russell, originally, it was not Carpenter's plan to put Kurt Russell in it. The studio wanted a really big star. They offered it to like Eastwood. This is, that's what's interesting. They asked, offered it to Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood. It'd been, it's not that, at least I guess for Eastwood, it's not that they said no. It was just they were busy at the time. <laughs> so can you imagine? I could actually kind of because at the time Eastwood in the mid '80s was doing some silly movies. He did City Heat. He did some like kind of comedy. I mean, he had just come off of up until I think Unforgiven, his two most believe it or not most bankable. Uh, box office oh, successes yeah, yeah. were uh, any which way you can and every which way but loose those the movies with with Clyde the orangutan yeah, which are yeah. hilarious so I could conceivably see him doing this but it would just add it uh, another yeah, crazy so layer I, of the yeah. onion to and think he of also would have been both of them it's hard to imagine somebody older Eastwood was 50 would have been 55 when he did it I mean he would have looked in shape and stuff and he would have been great physically 
I don't think his age would have deterred him, but it would have been interesting because he would have been at least 15 to maybe 20 years older than Russell. Because I guess Russell had to be what maybe in his late 30s. He wasn't that old because he no, was in his. He no. was. He had to be in his 30s. Yeah, because he was doing Disney. And uh, they say that like his, the, the studio was like, well, he's an up and coming star, so yeah, we can use him. Yeah. And obviously, well, he had worked with Carpenter. And, and Carpenter, sh- Carpenter struggled to get him cast in Escape from New York. Yeah, you know, he they they, they worked together prior in Elvis. The, yeah, the TV Elvis movie. And then they did... Which Carpenter admits, like, he didn't even really know who Kurt Russell was before they did, made that movie. And then he auditioned for it, and he thought... Oh, isn't Disney... Uh, we've heard uh, Carpenter say that the three best actors ever worked with are Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, and I think... Um, what's his name from Jurassic well, Park? He, he says Sam Neill, Sam and Neil. also Donald Pleasance. I think he gets Pleasance a lot too? of props, too. Yeah. Well, because he's, like, his favorite actor... Yeah, he says with Russell, it's because Russell, you know, he w- he was schooled in the Disney philosophy yeah, in the sixties, yeah. being a child actor. So he was professional in that he always came in knowing his lines and he knew how to hit his mark. Yeah, which is what James <laughs> Cagney used to. When people ask James Cagney for advice, he'd just say, "Know your lines and hit your mark," <laughs> and that was that was the only that was the only acting advice. So I guess that works. And uh, it's such a weird movie that at the time they cast Russell and then the script was supposed to be a Western set in the turn of the century, which is very interesting. And uh, I saw that uh, a lot of people at the time when it came out, especially uh, Ebert from Siskel and Ebert, drew to this. And when I watched it, I, I, I saw the parallels. It reminds me of a Fu Manchu, Charlie Chan, or Mr. Moto movie in the sense of like that early to mid-30s B-movie. It has very much the romantic comedy-esque of the Cary Grant, you know, bringing a baby or his girl Friday with the play between Kurt Russell's character and Kim Cattrall's character. They go back and forth. Well, John Carpenter has never been shy in talking about how Howard Hawks is his biggest um, influence and his his biggest cinematic hero. So it's not surprising that Kim Cattrall's character of Gracie Law really does come off as like a Hawks gal. Yeah, she seems like a uh, like she's a Faye Ray or one of those girls who was in there like, you know, a Carol Lombard. She's who's fast gonna, talking. She's yeah. strong. Yeah, she's uh, not. And that's that's interesting too because you think about it like, and I think she said that was a thing that allured her to the role as well, that she's the brains and Kurt's kind of the brawn. And it's funny because you think of him, if you watch the movie, you think he's the leading man in it or it's his story, but actually it's just, he's basically like, the dude from The Big Lebowski, where yeah, the plot yeah. happens around well, Carpenter him. says he, it's one of the things he really loves about that movie, is that uh, Jack Burton, Kurt Russell's character, he is the sidekick, but he thinks he's the hero. Yeah. And it really does kind of play, it, it's a great kind of take on that character, and a take for, like, an action here. Like, uh... Uh, Wang Chi, uh, Dennis Dunn's character, who who's is, his partner in the movie, who's like. kind of his partner in the movie, and actually the reason why we're on this adventure, um, he goes to pick up his girlfriend at the at the airport. Jack Burton comes with them. She gets kidnapped, and bam, we're in like this crazy adventure of trying to find this 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 woman, which leads him to Chinatown, and the plot unfolds. But, but he, <laughs> but it, it's like it is like uh, Wang Chi's story. It's like his, he's got what's at stake. He's the one that kind of brought us into this, even though Jack Burton's, you know, like physically, he's Jack Burton, we're introduced it. to Jack Burton's yeah. character first. But it's really uh, the other character's story. And Jack Burton's just there to, like, lend a hand. <laughs> yeah, he just, he's just, like, chewing the scenery. And it's, al- it's also interesting, his, 
his uh, his choices where I you know I don't think it's a secret prior to when he did Escape from New York he said he kind of envisioned it like uh, Snake Plissken was like Eastwood yeah you know and, and since Lee Van Cleef was cast and you had uh, Tom Atkins and Ernest Borgnine a lot of the old school guys so he envisioned the Snake Plissken I'm gonna come to, at this character as Eastwood would have came to maybe in a spaghetti western so you have very much of an Eastwood performance which I think is brilliant yeah. and in this one I think he also uh, really minces no words and says he kind of uh, he kind of um, channeled John Wayne, but I see I don't find it at all in a uh, he. It's not a parody, and he's not kind of making fun of John Wayne. I just see him being the innocent all-American, like no nonsense, kind of naive, kind of like our parents, or at yeah, least yeah. my dad, where it's like you know he's going to stand up for what he thinks is right. He doesn't understand anything because you know? <laughs> there's a lot of that dialogue where he's just like you know what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know he just you know it's more like. And it lends itself to the Western idea that they were originally going to It's more do like with the script. Jack Burton, when he thinks about himself, <laughs> he envisions John Wayne. Yeah. Like the, you know yeah, what I mean? The, the so it's like though, that's where it's coming from is that like in his head, he's John Wayne. But to everybody else's head, he's more like, you know, he's, he's it's a, you know, it's more a, Jerry Lewis yeah. or something. <laughs> you I mean, know? It's, it's just funny. He's he's always trying to, you know, be the, the you know, the, the brave tough guy or, or you know be the the honorable man and that really propels that those nuances of his character really propels him and gets him into trouble and i guess furthers the plot along for us yeah. as he but it's know, i mean it's admirable it's admirable though. very much so yeah you know he's always you know. and he's you know and he's an innocent he's not really corruptible you, you never really see him do anything he has a good morality where you you don't feel like he's you know he'll always do the right thing so you always feel like you can rely on jack yeah. burton as much as that's worth there's even like you know wang chi's like i'm gonna i'm gonna i gotta go to Lopan's together. Oh, yeah. And even though it's like certain death, and he's like, you know, so I'm just going to go by myself. And Jack Burton steps right in. He's like, I said I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> you um, know? Like, he's in, for the, he's in for the long haul. One, I mean, there's like this kind of subplot that that the Wang Chi's character owes him money. Yeah, But it's beginning. not really, I mean, even for 86, it's not enough money to like, risk your life <laughs> it's just you get. know it's just he signs on he wants to, you know it's it's almost like that seven dollars or whatever it's like the what is that movie the the the, the remake of uh, uh the big payback the mel gibson movie it's only oh, yeah, it's yeah. like it's it's that's the remake of the um uh point blank the lee marvin movie and it's just it's only it's the principle you only owe me a hundred bucks but yeah. you know i want my money so it's like yeah, he's gonna f- finish this adventure out to get his truck back which his truck gets stolen and yeah. then he and then he ends up uh Helping him because it's the right thing to do. I mean, I love his truck. I love he has his own business. Uh, it's Jack Burton's Trucking. And he's got a nice little Freightliner truck. And on the front of it, I like how it says "Haul an Ass." <laughs> you know, and he's got a little girl. You know, it's pork, interesting. Pork and he's Chop Express. Yeah, and he's he's a he's basically he's a trucker bringing pigs to Chinatown. So that's uh, that, that's his deal. And he's and he's in it. And it's very much uh, a movie of my own heart because it's. What really, really got me into it is that it's a serial kind of a movie. It's, yeah. it's basically just like a uh, he is a quartermain. He's an Indiana Jones. I mean, for whatever whatever um, uh, things he has against him, and, and uh, he doesn't really, you know, he's not maybe as brave or as smart as these people, but he still is one of those characters that it just seems like a Saturday morning serial. And especially when you bring in the fantastic, all the mysticism of Chinatown, which I completely loved. Yeah, yeah. You know, which I guess lends itself I, at the beginning when they were trying to make it a, a turn of the century Western in Sa- set in San Francisco. Uh, I liked a lot of the, the the Chinese history that they tried to bring to it, like that that was true. A lot of the Chinese came over here because of the gold rush. F- 
they stopped in Hawaii. They came here. They they uh, were treated horribly, and uh, they they made barely pennies. They helped make the the, the both the railroads that connected uh, from east to west, and uh, you know a lot of this nation's industry was built on their backs, and especially also African American slave labor. But it's just amazing. You integrate the history with their philosophy and their old ways and the mysticism and the magic, and it lends itself to a really good story. And you have this character, Lo Pan, who's such a great villain. He's he's two thousand years old. He's 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 uh he's got this curse on him. He's trying to alleviate this curse from like the first. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, one of the things about the the confusing things about it is like. Like really, what is Lopan trying to do? <laughs> and I mean, it's there. It does, but it does take a little bit of thought. It's he said in two in, in two hundred uh, two seventy two BC, two thousand years ago, he was a curse was put on him by some sort of I guess demon lord or some sort of higher entity, and he's waited two thousand two hundred fifty eight years to find he has to he has to marry a girl with green eyes. To, but it's like he has to marry a girl with green eyes to satisfy. The 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 like god the, or the, the and then deity, and then he's got to kill her to satisfy somebody else. He's got he's got to he's got to like marry her. I think he's got to he's got to drink her blood or something or sacrifice her to get his human form back. He's yeah, been yeah. he's been in this this well, he, body. He, he is human, but yeah. he's in like an old frail body. It's very much like but Gary Oldman in Dracula. But he's got like a spirit that he presence. can he could tur- yeah he can he can kind of become this. Yeah, like a spirit, I guess. He can yeah. go through walls. He can be seen by people. He has special powers, but he's, and he doesn't have the power he needs. And by doing this, by completing the ceremony with the girl with green eyes, he then becomes younger. The spirit presence, but for real. Yeah, like he's basically like Dracula. He's he's basically he wants to fulfill get get, <laughs> get it's just the Dracula. lifeblood. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, and the Chinese version of Dracula, and he's going to be young again. I didn't. I wasn't clear if. If that ceremony went through, if he was going to take over the world, or it would just he would have just become. I think it was just more life eternal. Okay, I thought he was going to rule. Some I'm sure. Sort of dem- you know. realm. It's never really explained what he's going to do with, with that. But you know, you can tell he talks about being, being trapped in like his old frail bodies, like being in prison. Of course, it's so I, th- I thought the. Uh, his his the, the makeup effects on him as a uh, yeah, yeah. as a uh, uh, in the wheelchair an, an elderly man were great. Um, it's it's such a bizarre movie. Just that the, it it keeps going. Uh, stuff never stops. It's so awkward. It's interesting. The the little the beginning. The little like um, uh, epilogue they put on it, where they they have the old man uh, egg pan uh, at the beginning. Uh, I'm sorry, egg like Shen. Shen. Yeah. Shen. He he's at like a lawyer's office giving like a dis- a, a deposition, yeah. and I guess they said they you put it on Jack Burton. Alone. Yeah, because they're looking for Jack Burton because of what happened. Because I guess the whole Chinatown blew up in a great green flame, and he's wanted. And they're like, you 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 should be thankful for Jack Burton. He shows some magic. So I guess it said something. What I was reading that the studio was not was after the movie was done, they were kind of confused with the story. So they had Carpenter go and shoot that exposition to put at the tail end because they never really go back to that I would have thought at the very end of the movie yeah, yeah. Uh, you know maybe before you see the coda with Jack Burton on the radio driving his truck to wherever you'd have a scene where they come back and that lawyer's like okay you know but they never you, c- yeah, you almost yeah. forget about that which yeah is you kind of do I mean it really is just you know it's just a throwaway for no real reason <laughs> it doesn't advance the story at all I mean I guess it just gets you prepared that 
you know something went down. Uh, they've got a lot, a lot of great Chinese uh, um, uh, American actors in it. I mean, there's tons of dudes. There's the dude in the '80s who was in everything. He was <laughs> yeah. in Die Hard. He was in Lethal Weapon. He's in that. Uh, well, the guy who plays Lo Pan, I and I have this theory, and it's not proven. It's completely like I've just completely made it up. But I <laughs> think that James Hong, who played Lo Pan, yeah. He must be the guy who's been in more fucking movies than anybody else in history. Right? Him, him, because he's fucking in. Every, he's in like Chinatown. Yeah, him and Key Luke, the actor who played uh, Warner Olin's number one son and Charlie Chan, who ended up. We see that's 1932 or 33. He shows up as number one son. Key Luke ends up being the old man that we see in Gremlins. That's selling the mod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that's full spectrum to how long he's been in the industry. So him and. Uh, what's the other gentleman's name you said? James Hong. Yeah, they are those voice actors you know and love in the 60s and 70s. Like, James Hong is, is Johnny Quest. He's the he's the evil, you know, Mr. Benton Quest. Yeah. You know, that that's him. And, and Key Luke, you know, he's all over Hanna-Barbera cartoons, too. He ends up voicing Charlie Chan and his amazing Charlie Chan clan in the 70s, the TV show. So, you're right. They're everywhere, these two guys. And James Hong, I mean, he's... He's in Briscoe County. He, well, he's in a lot of 80s he's episodic. He's in, like, Revenge of the Nerds TV. Two. <laughs> yeah. He's in, like, a, just this crazy... He's in that uh, Balls of Fury, which is a kind of more recent comedy. Is he still alive, I guess? Yeah, he, yeah. He's still working. It's amazing. Just He's been in... He's fucking... He's in everything. Well, it's a niche, you know? I mean, like, you know, if you need a, a stereotypical like, kind of actor... let's get the Asian guy. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> like if we move to, to, like, Asia, let's get the white guy when we're here, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh... Yeah, yeah, you know he must be he must be one of the act like the character. I think just gets yeah, I think he's like the groundskeeper or the or the butler or something in Chinatown. He right? is. He's in Walter Bath of Glass. He's great, and I, I love his whole story. I thought the special effects are for the time for '86 are pretty good. Uh, the yeah, visual I mean, effects and stuff. I mean, you know, to be honest, like I would take. There's something very soothing about like that, like. When they do like lightning or lasers and stuff uh, during that time, or if they probably had to animate it like frame by frame or whatever, I don't know. I just feel like it looks so awesome. It looks a lot better compared to like what they do today. Yeah, with with the CGI. CGI. Yeah, I love and I've always loved the three. Lopant has these three bad guys called the uh, the three storms, and I guess it's thunder, rain, and lightning. Yeah, yeah. are the three guys, and they come down. Yeah, uh, there's a big battle when they get to Chinatown with Jack Burton in the truck looking for the for the girlfriend they end up uh, falling into this Chinese street gang battle between the Lords of Death and the Chang sons the good guys and then uh, in the middle of a funeral and then these three uh, storms come down who are, I guess they're also like demons that, that yeah there's th- some kind of they kind of answer to Lopan and when I was little the, the lightning guy always scared the shit out of me you know yeah, and, it's, yeah. and then it's it's very interesting and it it, it I love all the special effects, and it's it's interesting. You, you get swept along as as an audience uh, because of uh, Jack Burton, Kurt Russell's character, and he it sometimes is just such a buffoon and stuff. And when they, you know, like like we were saying before, no matter what, he's going to help. And they they're going to go into a flop house or like a uh, a a, a, a whorehouse uh, or a, or a madam's den or whatever you want to call it to try to. Uh, find they think that, that the girls are hidden there which i think they are yeah yeah Th- they're being held there and he goes in and, and uh he's got one of the f- the funniest uh performances in the world he calls himself henry henry swanson and he's like i'm looking for the white tiger he's <laughs> looking in his eyes and that was yeah, yeah. 
that line in college, we used to look. I'm looking for a girl with green eyes. <laughs> we used to always love how his little uh, going in, like, and it's almost like well, something Cary Grant would do. You know, like you know, you dress up as somebody with glasses. Yeah, and you he walk got in. his hair like combed over. Yeah, and he like, looks like an idiot. Out. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, there's a great setup to that too because they're sitting outside in the car, getting ready. And he's like, "Okay, you got to go in. This is what you got to ask for." They're like prepping him, uh, Gracie Law and, and Wang Chi, and and. Uh, they're like, and you know, you, and Wang Chi says something like, and you gotta, you gotta look, you know, you gotta play dumb. You gotta look dumb. Like, you don't know anything. And she looks at him. She's like, all right, you know, like, mission accomplished or something like that. Like, he already looks, he looks, he already looks the part. Uh, and then we cut to, then the next shot is like him walking up with like big glasses. Does he walk into increase. frame as well? He's like, he walks <laughs> and he's got like this really horrible. I don't know if it's like a velvet suit, like it looks like crimson or something. Like it looks like carpet, and he's yeah, just yeah. he's looking for this girl. And then the three storms come in there, and they they, they battle, and they go get uh, they take the girls away, and then that's when they lead them to the lair. I mean, it is just, it is it's just a really bizarre movie. Um, the guy who re- ended up rewriting the script, uh, W. D. Richter, one I find interesting. I think he wrote the 78 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, wow. Which is interesting because it's like another movie that takes place in San Francisco, which I don't know if there's anything like me. Just oh, what if the guy's from San Francisco? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he directed uh, Buckaroo Banzai. With yeah, the they did say that. Was that, a, was, that, that, was that a hit at the time? I don't know if it was a hit. Because they mean, said this movie kind of failed when this came out. But uh, China, uh, uh, Big Trouble in China. But uh, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai or whatever... The, the actual title of that movie is, is also a very fucking weird movie. And and it's, uh, do you think it would be made today? You think you'd be able no, to get that made? Nobody would ever. I don't think anybody... I mean, somebody would make Big Trouble in Little China now, but it wouldn't be the movie no. that was made in 1986. Um, and I feel like only someone like Terry Gilliam would be able to <laughs> maybe get Buckaroo done, and then it would be such an odd... But when I when movie. I read that he did Buckaroo Banzai, I was like, oh, makes sense. Like I could totally see that. Yeah, yeah. Like how Big Trouble and Little China and that are kind, because of, it's just bizarre. I mean, they go, they, they travel. There's a lot of subterranean travel. They're going through the well, sewers. I love all that. I love that they take they, they have like, this underworld and that there's this like ancient Chinese world down there, and it's really weird that. You think about did the, did the uh, Chinese make it down there in the world, the bog of dead trees, they call it, or has that always been there and they just have access to it? So, like, anywhere you go like below the earth, <laughs> is that, you know, there's, there's like I a know, hole. like, Aik Shen just has, like, a Batman, like, yeah, fire pole. Yeah, because it, like <laughs> fi- it looks like an old firehouse. I'll I think be, he's yeah. living in an old firehouse, but he has this pole that just goes, like, yeah, they open the door. They op- they, underground they, somewhere. Yeah, he has, like, one of those heavy doors, uh, security doors, and he, he, like, and he rolls it up. And then he takes off to like a, oh it looks like a, a manhole cover and yeah you gotta zip down so it makes you think anywhere in the world or if you're in New York City if you're in San Francisco you know if you can find an entrance to this, it's almost like Fraggle Rock are you gonna go down yeah, there yeah. and this is gonna be this world you can get to and then you know what I found interesting too is like the climactic battle uh, my wife pointed this out she's like pause it for a minute she's like because uh, they're in some sort of arena where they're having the marriage ceremony with Lopan she's like. Aside from the neon. Yeah. She goes, is there an escalator installed? <laughs> and there, there is an es- they have the bridal party go down on an escalator, and then they, esca- they, they leave on an escalator. Yeah, I couldn't tell if... Because you could see the you could, <laughs> other see shots. The you could see the moving. steps moving. You know what I mean? Because at the time, you, know, you don't know if the intention's supposed to be that yeah, they, they, they just, just float. floating. Yeah, yeah. 
But no, it's an escalator. And it's like, wow. They, they, and and <laughs> everything is like trimmed neatly with neon lights. Yeah, the 80s. It's very <laughs> it's 80s. Like, I love like the thought of like Lopan ordering in like, yeah, con- you know, private con- contractors <laughs> to measure it. <laughs> and they have, they have to well, have like, have neon, neon yeah. light guys that like bend the neon light around this like giant the skull, skull mountain, whatever it is. Skull doorway. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of weird like the, the, the little eyeball creature well he's another one out of he basically is uh a i don't know what you can call it like one of the droids from like star wars where like lopan can use him to see there's like this for those of you that haven't seen it and if you haven't shame on you yeah (laughs) there's like this floating bulbous head that's like covered in eyeballs and has an eyeball on the tip tip of its tongue it's very fucking weird yeah when i was little that always freaked me out because when it opens its mouth there's an eye there and i was always and it's like, like oh licks its own face yeah. or something and okay there but at least that has a purpose like its purpose is that like what it sees lopan can see whereas like the big like beast man which is yeah. very much out of like uh <laughs> master of the universe a couple <laughs> years that's later. what i mean he looks exactly like like beast man from like the cartoon or whatever this giant like primate monster thing. Very feral. Not there's doesn't re- look very smart. There's really no purpose. I mean, it serves... Like, there's no reason why anything that that thing does couldn't have been done by one of the three storms or a henchman. There's just, like, for... You know, just for the sake of having a weird fucking furry well, I wonder monster. If, there's if, a weird fucking furry monster. I wonder if, if he's supposed to be the example of that... These are the kind of creatures that that lurk in the bo- in the bog of dead trees or that 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 underworld there, you know. Yeah. So maybe there's a whole bunch of other characters that we haven't seen that uh, that come about. And it's weird because then near the end of the movie when they defeat Lopan, I I always thought of this as a child, and I still thought of this last night when I watched it. Uh, they defeat two out of the three storms, and then the one last one, once he realizes Lopan's dead, he's so uh, upset, he, he kind of just blows himself up. Yeah, he inflates yeah. until he explodes. We, we get a hint of that when he's like battling yeah, he, Kurt yeah. Russell, that he can expand his body. Cause he, yeah, Kurt Russell jumps on his back because he's, he's just such a big guy, and then he, he, he kind of he blows himself off. He inflates himself, and it pushes Kurt Russell off. But I wonder, I guess me looking into it more than I should, last night, maybe... His character sees that Lopan's dead, and he wants, to, since he uh, is, you know, a very a henchman or very loyal to Lopan, he wants to go with him to the underworld yeah, too. Yeah, to so maybe that's why he's killing himself. To something, or he's that upset. It yeah. is like I mean, it's it, 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 there's but there, it, there's so much comedy in it that I that for me does work, and I, I don't know if it's unintentional. Like the whole scene with the, uh, uh, you know, when they have him in the wheelchair, you know, and they bring him to that place, and then he and then they're able to get out, and then. There's a fight and Carlos falls back. Yeah, and yeah no, I mean it's clearly it's he's playing it all for comedy. I mean it's an interesting movie. I mean, I I can't think of. I mean, basically the reason why Carpenter agreed to do it is because he had been wanting to do a project that explored like Chinese mythology, and he was a big fan of like super kung fu, wire fu, yeah. H- Hong Kong movies. Um, I think he had also been like working on a an adaptation with the writer of Big Trouble in Little China for a book called like Ninja or something that he wanted to do. But the reason why Carpenter agreed to do it was because he basically wanted to make a kung fu movie, yeah. and in a lot of ways, it's 
you know, 1986, I mean, clearly there were things like Kung Fu the series, and there, I'm sure there were martial art, American martial art movies. But I can't, yeah, think, but you, but I can't think of any movies that were doing, like, balls out, like, wire food. There wasn't really. I mean, there was uh, America mainstream martial art movies in the mid-'80s. You had, like, what, American Ninja? You remember that, that slew yeah, of them? But even that could and have been a couple of years later. Chuck Norris. You know, yeah, has, Chuck you know, Norris. But, but, but Chuck Norris certainly didn't get into wire food. Chuck yeah, Norris yeah. was just kung I mean, fu, kick your ass, I mean, roundhouse kicks and stuff. It's Missing now, I mean, now we take it for granted, but you think about, you know, it's a good, it's over a decade before The Matrix. Yeah. Um, or the at, big hit at, of The Wire Food. And then, like, you know, Kill Bill or Crouching, or Tug, Crouching Tiger. Tiger. I mean, you know, it's kind of the reason, you know, like, the thing, too. I mean, it's just like Carpenter's always just too far ahead of the curve for his own good. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting uh, when you talk about the thing. They make the thing, which is such a good remake of a of a. It's a it's a good example of a of a remake that actually either is just as good or surpa- surpasses the original. And when it went to market, it it flopped because the next week, what ET came out. Yeah, that's what he blames it on. You I know? think you know. I think it's an easy way to. I think it's easy to blame that, and he was. Called uh, pornographer of gore, he was being called. I mean, basically, it's crazy. Um, I mean, his career during that time. It, it's hard to imagine that a movie would flop so bad and be so hated that it literally could ruin somebody's career when they already have them. And like, okay, a new guy, first movie, it flops. He never makes another movie. Yeah. But a guy who had been like box office gold with from Halloween to. Uh, Escape from New York was a huge hit. Yeah, and then he makes the thing, his first like studio movie. And, uh, and uh, mind you, in two different genres because he was asked. A lot of people don't know, which we alluded to a minute ago. He was doing TV movies as well. He did the Elvis movie, which he worked on Kurt Russell with, which I don't even think is available. And then he I did think a, there is now a DVD of it. Yeah, and then but there for was the longest a, time it was not available. And, and then there was a lesser known movie called Someone to Watch Over Me, which he did right before, right during Halloween, which with uh, Adrian Barbeau, which is kind of like a modern up version of Rear Window ish. Kind of a thing. So he, he was, he was transversing both genres. Yeah, and there. he was writing scripts for. He was writing a lot and selling a lot of scripts at the time. Some of them got made. Some of them didn't get made. He wrote a western that never ended up getting made. Um, but the thing comes out, and is so critically panned, and makes so little money at the box office that it, it literally is like he it ruins his. It looks like it's going to ruin his career. Like that's how fucking much that movie which is interesting bombed. because this movie that nowadays is a cult classic and it's still considered it is con- now when you look back at it now it's more widely considered his best work and it still holds up where a lot of times you can say okay it was the 80s or 70s you have to take it for what it is for the era that movie's special effects which Rob I think Bertin's are special effects I mean, we've talked about the Robertine special effects for that movie Ninety-five um, percent of it are all—I'd say ninety-five percent of it are all practical effects. There's not yeah, very it, little any kind of. Ma- there's maybe one matte painting. There's some matte painting. There's some, some when outside. There's some stop motion stuff. at but the even end. That is pra- you know, like practical. Yeah. I mean, clearly, no television. I mean, no uh, computer work was being done at yeah. that time. But that movie bombed so fucking bad that it's really going to ruin his career. And then by that, but by by that time, he's already working on Christine. So he makes Christine. I don't know how well Christine did but it gets to a point where like his agents and stuff are like you have to show these people that you're not 
like the devil incarnate. <laughs> it's interesting. And so then he makes Starman. Yeah. Which is like a love story, romantic comedy even, um, in a lot of ways, about an alien. Um, gets Jeff Bridges an Academy Award, uh, Award nomination. And then his next movie is Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and Starman was not a huge financial success. It did okay. Um, but the critics really liked it, and especially Jeff Bridges' uh, performance. So then he does um, Big Trouble in Little China, which is probably his most ambitious movie. Well, it's interesting. Movie. When we get to there, uh, the script is wi- written, like we said, as a turn-of-the-century Western. They buy it off the two guys who r- write it. They immediately want to modernize it. They, they hire the fellow you just mentioned to... to, to uh, W.D. Richter. Yeah, to, to, to do a rewrite, to update it. They basically... Uh, original writers are Gary Goldman and uh, Dave, David Weinstein. Yeah, they, they, they basically throw everything that they had out, aside from the low-pan backstory and the, a lot of the mysticism of the Chinatown. They modernize it. And then the studio wants to desperately get it into production because uh, across the way at a rival studio, they've just greenlit Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy at the time is box office gold because of Beverly Hills Cop or whatever, 48 Hours. So they want this, uh, which rival, which basically has the same kind of, uh, it's in the same subgenre, to go against it. And they want to put Big Trouble out before Golden Child. And then Carpenter says that he was even offered uh, Golden Child. And he says, like, what I think is a funny quote. He says, uh, you think about these two kind of movies, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the shit out of him but he's like you think about these kind of two movies how similar they are on plot they don't come out in, in 50 years you won't see the same thing they come out right near each other and they're both offered to me and, and they're coming out at the same time you know and it's, so he goes with big trouble yeah. and they're rushing him in the production to try to get it out so hopefully it's going to be a success and then it doesn't end up it ends up being a flop it doesn't take in as I, th- I mean as much. i think it makes money but i don't think it makes the kind of mo- it doesn't it definitely does not make the kind of money they were hoping it, it was going to make it, the budget was i think about 25 million and it only grossed domestically about uh 11.2 million yeah so i don't know how much it, and it prob- and probably yeah an american domestic so that really sank him and then it says it really made him kind of hate the studio system and that's when he started going more into yeah because then his next picture is uh, they Live and Prince of Darkness are, are then again considered like independent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's another cult classic. The next one, They Live, is is still today, you know, 80. They Live has had a resurgence. Uh, but all, see, see, isn't that In weird the last though? like five years. The thing, it was first the thing with the resurgence, and then I feel like Big Trouble always has been a cult. Cl- it's basically like the 80s version of The Big Lebowski. Well, it's so fun, so it's hard to. And then you have uh, They Live, where They Live has been uh, parodied on, uh, they had a shot for shot remake on uh, South Park. You know, uh, of the of the legendary Keith yeah. David uh, Roddy Piper fight scene in the alleyway, uh, it is very well regarded. Uh, they live. It has. It's really. There's like. Um, I've read all, an entire book written about they live. Really? <laughs> yeah. Was it good? It was okay. Yeah. Um, you well, see like it a lot. Commentary? You mean like that? Yeah, like that? it talks about like its, its significance and its message, but also a little bit about like the making of the movie and stuff. But I mean, even now in the city, you walk around Times Square, and it seemed like I remember from a few years ago, but it seems like it's made a huge comeback. I, I've I, seen that. I yeah. forget 
what the artist's name, but there's like a pop artist who had this big like obey campaign. I think he's the same artist that did that, that like that picture of Obama that's like red, white, and blue. Yeah. And you see that's kind of like parodied now and in a million things. But he had this big obey campaign with like it's the word obey in like big block letters and you see it now. I've seen it like really recently all the time with like young people on hats and in shirts I've and seen TV that, yeah. and uh T shirts and stuff. And he like admittedly acknowledges that like he took that from they live and especially these people walking around with it don't even <laughs> fucking know they don't they don't have any idea yeah um but big trouble it, it seems like it, it shouldn't have got the bum rap it did and it seems like carpenter at the time uh i certainly don't think post i guess this is debatable but post uh uh, in the mouth of madness, his stuff kind of started to go down. Sadly, but but that happens to everybody. I mean, we can name yeah, a half yeah. a dozen. Uh, there you know, are very. F- let's put it this way: there are very few like successful creative people, music, movies, and stuff who are able to just survive. That continue to release work that is as provocative or as good or whatever as their earlier work. Yeah, which we, is, which we is, can debate it forever as to why that is. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it's, belie- it's, it's, it's believable. I mean, you know, it's hard to just try to put out new material and, and still be current and still be original and not seem like you're... Because, you know, at what, at what point are you parroting yourself? Yeah, yeah. But it seems like in that, he had such groundbreaking stuff going into the 80s and then to have such a raw deal for those... Though, that's that For the mid-80s and those movies aside from Starman, it just seems like... It shouldn't have been that way, you know. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, his his career is a bit of an uh, anomaly, and he is a a bit of an anomaly himself. I mean, he's very. I just find him to be a really interesting guy. Um, Seems like he's always wanted to make a western. He's never, well, yeah, I mean, he never has. All his movies. Have you, you and I saw a colloquium with him before he did a colloquium at like Lincoln Center before he, yeah. he screened the, sh- uh, the thing. thing in like 2002 or one. And uh, I remember I put my arm up, but I didn't, I didn't get called on. But that was going to be my question to him. I was like, you know, will you ever make a western? Uh, I mean, he. It's very uh, arguable, and I agree that he has made westerns, but they just haven't been a genre yeah. western. Yeah, yeah, you know, every one of his movies you could say is a, basically a western. I mean, disguise. vampires is even probably the most direct. Yeah, but it's contemporary. But I'd like to see him. I, you know, I'd like to see him actually do it. He's straight written up. them. He has a. There is a script that he wanted to make into a western that just never got. He just never ended up making. Um, but see, it's interesting. Then he says he wrote. He read the first draft or two of uh, the original. Big Trumbull China script, and he said it was horrible. He said it had a lot of good things, but it was, it was like he said, like obnoxiously unreadable or something to that extent. And it's like you would have think he would have had a little more lenience for it because he was he's such a fan of the Western. He's such yeah, a fan yeah. of the Howard Hawks or um, what's his name, John Ford, John Ford, and all those, and even Leone. Yeah, and in the in the spaghetti westerns or the John Wayne movies, like he, well, Real Bravo is like his favorite movie, and the other one where. Uh, John, there's there's two John Wayne movies where it's it's interchangeable with Ricky Nelson, Robert Mitchum, <laughs> or Dean Martin, yeah, where they're uh, stuck real in Bravo and uh, um, Real Grande, real or Real Lobo, maybe, <laughs> you know. But it's it's like it, Mitchum plays the drunk in one movie, and then Dean Martin plays the drunk in the other movie, and then Ricky Nelson's in one of them singing, and they're both great movies. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's basically it's it's uh, uh, Night of Living Dead or Assault on Precinct Thirteen, where they get stuck in a a little uh, town like a little sheriff's. Uh, office and they're they're besieged by maybe Mexicans or somebody and it in he that ta- he ta- you know he talks a lot about how Assault on Precinct Thirteen is like a remake of that but it's so kind of not Assault on Precinct Thirteen 
It's. Uh, more I think in all the movies we discussed. Of Eternity is more of an ad- adaptation of uh, I Am Legend or something. You know, yeah, it's, very, you it's know, much more in the but, vein of like Night in the Living Dead than it is I, I real did, Bravo. I did a uh, an article on Podwits.com, which I, I freely endorse everyone to go check out about Assault on Precinct Thirteen. And I hadn't seen it since I was a child. It scared the crap out of me. And arguably, we can do a cast on each one of these movies we're talking about on John, on John Carpenter. But I think. Assault is basically an action movie, but because Carpenter got it, Carpenter turned it into something else, and it almost becomes a horror movie. Like it almost becomes, it has, like you're saying, it has these these shades of I Am Legend or something seedier. Because any other director, that could have been a '70s B TV movie, and it might have been not that good. You could have got like William Shatner or somebody at the time that was big, like Eddie Albert, to to be a star and be the star who stuck <coughs> in the in, in in the in the police station, but. Carpenter takes it and he, and he does his own soundtrack, which we have to get into his soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. His soundtrack is very terrifying. It has that the whole opening of them stalking people, and it, and it seems like it's, it takes place in the near future, much like Assault, uh, much like uh, Escape from New York. And then once the people get stuck in the police precinct, the gang is no longer a gang individuals. It's like an entity. It's yeah. almost like the Blob. It's almost like they're zombies. You know, you don't look at them as individuals. You look at them as masses and. It's beautiful how he photographs them moving around. You only see like shadows, and it's very freaky. It's very unsettling that movie, and it still holds up. Again, I never saw the remake. Did you say you liked the remake? The Ethan I Hawk? haven't seen it since like it came out, but yeah. I remember liking it. I remember thinking it was pretty good. I was worried that they would just trash it, and then he did. Then he almost redid it again himself when he did Ghost of Mars, <laughs> which I like Ghost of Mars, and I know everyone hates yeah, yeah. it, you know. But when it came out, I had no. Pr- I was like, yeah, this is. This I don't is know if it's true, but there, there's this f- funny story about Ghost of Mars where. Um, you know, Robert Rodriguez is like a John Carpenter disciple. Yeah. Like, just fucking loves John Carpenter. Has interviewed him a million times for, like, screenings. Uh, he, uh, Robert Rodriguez has a channel now on cable called El Rey, and he has a show called The Director's Chair, where it's a whole hour episode dedicated to a director where he sits there and interviews him. John Carpenter was the first one he did. Wow. Um, but this, the story goes is that Robert Rodriguez went to, like, Harvey Weinstein and was like, you really got to do something with John Carpenter. Um, you know, he's like, you guys really need to work together. It's John Carpenter. So they go in for a meeting and Harvey Weinstein, and they're pitching like ideas to Harvey Weinstein. And Harvey Weinstein just says like John Carpenter. I'm like, you know, oh, that's fine. But you know what I really, you need to do something that's like Assault on Precinct 13 on Mars or something like that. This is what Weinstein said? <laughs> yeah. So then they leave, they come back, they hire a writer or whatever, Carpenter writes, I don't even remember who wrote it, but they come back with a script or whatever to Harvey Weinstein, and he's like, he reads it, and he's like, this is just something Precinct 13 on Mars, like, why would we make this movie? So then they took it to, like, another like another studio and got it made. I don't know if that's a true story, but uh, I, you know, that's a lot what of I've people, always heard about it. I don't remember it being a success, and a lot of people who were Carpenter fans at the time that I knew slagged it off, Not I'm not saying you, but other yeah. people I knew, and I loved it. I thought it was I good. Liked, I, I think liked it's freaky. it a lot. To it's got honest, its problems, but to be honest, I liked it a lot when I when I when we first saw it. Yeah, I haven't seen and it. Then, since then. And then I was watching some of it on TV or something, or I revisited it when I was going to interview him or something, and it was it was like almost unwatchable oh, for bad. me the, on, a, on a it revisit. Was, it was it was the time when Ice Cube was really a big lead actor when he was doing the Friday movies. So they like you know they put him in and it. And he's awful in it. Is he? Oh, that's yeah, a shame. Yeah. Well, who's the other one? Natasha Kinstridge. I remember her being pretty good. And it was supposed to be uh, Courtney Love 
but then there was like oh no shit yeah I don't she think was cast and they were about to start shooting and like like Carpenter just like had it with her or something I don't think that would have been a good and choice like, at all and like just candor and like they called Natasha Henstridge and it was like you want to do this movie we start shooting on Monday and it was like Friday or something wow I, it's such a great idea though I mean just the, 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 the idea about it well anyway do you, uh, go, <laughs> go check it out if you want the Big Trouble in Little China probably going back full circle as I, what I said before we went off on this tangent, probably his most ambitious movie. Yeah. Um, I've, I've talked to both him and Alan Howarth, who Alan Howarth um, assisted him in, in uh, writing and recording all those scores from the 80s. Uh, both, it's, See, I don't think a lot of people know this. I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a, 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 a some sort of affinity for film, so maybe you do know, but a lot of people don't know that Carpenter... What he basically, aside from the thing with because it's in Yomaricone, yeah. he does those, all his own scores as the Coupe de Villes. Well, no, not even as the Coupe de Villes. He just does his he just does his own scores, and he basically he's not he's not like a technician. And when you're working with that many synthesizers, especially like from the '70s and the early '80s, it's not just like push button. I'll get this sound. Some of them, it's like you have to physically like tune it to get like certain sounds. And so he always worked with like. Uh, Salted Priester 13, Halloween, and The Fog, he worked with another gentleman, I can't remember what his name is at the moment, um, who was somebody who taught like synthesizer stuff at uh, USC. And so that, he worked with Carpenter. And then starting with Escape from New York, he started working with Alan Howarth, who uh, worked and continues to work in the sound department. He, he worked... Uh, on at Raiders of the Lost Ark in the mm. sound department. He worked at Poltergeist, uh, Hunt for Red October. I mean, he's worked on so many movies uh, as, like, creating sound effects. And he was, like, the sound designer or, like, manager or something for Army of Darkness. I mean, his career is, like, massive in, sound, uh, in the sound department. But he starts working with Carpenter um, because he's really into synthesizers and he's, he's a musician. So he starts working with Carpenter, starting with um, Escape from New York, they do Escape from New York. Carpenter has Neil Morricone do the thing, but um, I mean, there's some funny stories there in that, like, uh, Neil Morricone writes a score without ever seeing the movie yeah. and just gives him the cues. Carpenter listens to the cues and doesn't like them, and he's got to go to Neil Morricone, who's like one of his heroes, yeah. and say, like, that's great, Neil, but can you do it with less notes? And he plays him the Escape from New York score. He says, can you make it sound like this? So he's asking a Neuromorcone, like, arguably, not even arguably, one of the one of the best, at least well-known film composers of all time to just do John Carpenter and not do a Neuromorcone. But it's interesting that the thing turns out to be uh, one of the most quotable or recognizable. But aside from the theme... yeah which is near Morricone, a lot of the music that carries that movie... The incidental. ...is, like, from scene to scene and stuff, um, is Carpenter. Oh, that's interesting. Uncredited. I, I will say... He, he, he says that he was editing and he realized that he needed more music. And, he's, and, when I, and when I talked to him, I said, well, like, why did you do it yourself then? Why you? so he's like, well, one, there's the language barrier. Uh, there's two, I have to go to Italy... So he's like, it just became like, I can sit here and try to get a Morricone to do more music, or I can just go to Alan's house and spend like three days and knock out like three or four more cues that I need. So the music that like, 
aside from the theme, which is great, um, but some of the other music that you really kind of connect with the thing is actually Carpenter and That's Alan amazing. Howarth. Um, another Assault on Precinct 13, I think, is one of those where you hear it once, it'll stay with you for the end of time. Dun, 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 dun. Boom, dun, 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 dun. Great. Uh, same thing with uh, Escape in New York. I don't have to say anything about Halloween. Yeah, Halloween. Halloween is like on every freaking it's like its Halloween party CD. It's its own entity at this point. Um, but when you get to Big Trouble in Little China, I hear uh, a lot of Assault on Precinct 13 and a lot of Escape from New York. In, in the in s- certainly a lot of the incidental cues, uh, not so much the theme. Yeah. You know, the 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 theme that they actually they end up having a music video for in the 80s, <laughs> which we'll have to put out as a uh, a link to this cast. But uh, which Carpenter sings? I thought I was going to ask you before the cast. I said, "Was that Kurt Russell?" Because Kurt Russell did some singing with him for Elvis. So at the end, in the credits, they play the theme. They play a theme song, and I thought that was Kurt Russell. And you said, "No, that's Carpenter." Carpenter sings the main part. Nick it sells Elvis. <laughs> Nick Castle, who uh, is the director of movies like Last Starfighter, oh, um, was the shape was the man in the under the mask in Halloween. He sings the other. The, the background the other part and uh Tommy Lee Wallace who directed like Halloween 3 um the It miniseries he's also in the band they're the Coupe de Villes they went to college together and they had a band called the Coupe de Villes so for uh around the time of Big Trouble in Little China they did an album called Li- I think it's called Living Out the 80s or something or Waiting Out the 80s um they did an album that was produced by Alan Howarth and Alan Howarth studio uh, I don't think it ever got released. If you try to find it on vinyl now, it's like $400 because there was only like X amount of vinyls like pr- you know, like pressed for it. And then they also did the Big Trouble in Little China theme, um, which on the DVD, and you can find it on like YouTube and stuff. There's a music video that is hilarious. Yeah, it's great. It's very good. Um, but the theme itself, it's interesting. I mean, Carpenter says when he uh, went to do it, he consciously tried to avoid doing like what Asian... What, yeah, uh, like Hollywood's view interpretation on interpretation like, of, yeah, of Asian soundtracks, music. Are, yeah, which is um, very, very uh, noticeable in it that they're not really just trying to like, uh, uh, you know, nitpick or they're not trying to. Um, I can't even think of the word I'm looking for right now. Uh, you know, to it. You know, they're not yeah, yeah. It's kind of cliche. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Pander is the word. I'm looking for. Not trying to pander to that. Like, just make it stock. I mean, there's definitely you can hear Asian influences in it, but it's not like. You know, overt. Yeah. Um, he, but I think it works fine within the context of the movie. Sure. And then they take, they go, um, obviously, heavy synthesizer, um, much more of a rock feel than even some of their other stuff. Um, up to that point, it's definitely his most ambitious score. It's his biggest score. It's the score that he spent the most time on. Um, you know, some of those scores that he did for the other movies he did in just a matter of days or a week. They spent a really long time, like six weeks or something, doing the score for uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and I think because of some of those reasons, it's both Alan Howarth's and John Carpenter's in their, like, the, in their list of, it's like on the top of their list of their favorite scores that they did. Mm. Um, so it's really, it's really a great score. I mean, when I asked them when they, they talk about the, it, it was bigger, um, it's still just the two of them. It wasn't like they brought in. <clears throat> like an orchestra or anything but it's just more time more equipment um more overdubbing and, and stuff so it's really a it's really a great score um to a really fucking weird movie 
it, it's it's a good and another uh, great aspect of it that I love that I love to bring up is uh, it's my favorite era of Kim Cattrall, <laughs> and I think she's so gorgeous in this era. And then she's coming off of Police Academy, Porky's, two of which I haven't seen in. I, I don't even remember, and that's how long I haven't I just seen watch the Porky's for. Uh, is it any? Is it is it hold up or is it <laughs> is it worth watch? Should I go? It's like I get that mixed up, and I get the other one mixed up. The uh, meatballs. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. I uh, actually watched them both. It isn't Porky's recently. Bob Clark. Bob Clark did Porky's. God bless yeah. him. Bob Clark of uh, Christmas <laughs> Christmas Story frame fame. And, uh, we Black should Christmas, do a Bob Clark special. We should do a Bob maybe Clark a sidecast. Side yeah, that's that's a great idea. <laughs> He's certainly an innovator because there's new there's a new documentary which I haven't watched out yet on Netflix. It's on Instant. It's a Bob Clark documentary. Really? Yeah. It's either on Bob Clark, uh, Bob Clark specifically, or it's on uh, a Christmas story, and then they touch on Bob. It's called like Clark's World, I think it's called, uh, about Bob Clark and about all the different things he did. But um, Catral is uh, so gorgeous, and she's like this is the, the mannequin era. This is uh, also her. Uh, I guess it's a couple years before she does Star Trek Six. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's like almost a decade. Yeah, but she's so good in it, and she's, she's so great. She's she so like great spunky, formats. and she's gorgeous, and it just it really works for her. You know, the other the odd thing about it is the um, the Margot character. Yeah, doesn't really serve much of a purpose at all. No, in it's the movie. you know she's almost it. It goes back to she. It's almost like one of those B movie. Mar- the character of Margot is like this reporter that's like hoping you know trying to make her Mar- Margot uh, Hudsonberg or Hudsonberger. She's the connection that she's the press played by Kate Burton, which who was Richard Burton's daughter. Really? Yeah. She ends up being like on uh, Scrubs or one of these shows. She was in a lot of. T- I think she worked yeah. a lot in television, but uh, I think her big like big screen debut was Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Um, well, even she's good, and the other guy, Eddie. I mean, they're yeah, all great. They're, they're good. All, they're good, but they don't really. There's not a really a lot of there's expansion. No, there's there. really no reason. For well, that. <laughs> you, are you familiar with the deleted scenes on the special edition come out? Is there any kind of do they do they hash out any kind of backstory or anything? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, all I know is that there's like a little bit more. The only thing I know of specifically is there's a little more to the ending, where um, they run out, they get in the truck, they pull out. It's uh, so right after they like de- defeat Lopan, they're leaving. They all pile into the truck. They're leaving, and then they see the car. Those like, you know, the gang guys that that kidnapped. Oh, the girl in the, in the, the, in the Trans Am or whatever it is. Yeah, and then they go and like park, like on a pier, and then they're like, "Let's get out of here." Burton's like, "I got one more thing to do," and he drives and just like with his Mack truck pushes the car off the pier into the water. And then, like the next scene is like them at, at the at the Chinese restaurant, Wang Chi's Chinese restaurant. And it was like, Burns is like, yeah, hold on, I just have to murder these three guys. <laughs> yeah, but that was the time they didn't even didn't even you know didn't even refer to them back then. <laughs> he just goes and like mashes their car into the water, and then the next scene it's like, all right, I'm on my way. Uh, Aren't you even gonna kiss her? <laughs> and, he's, and it's interesting. He says no, and that's that's another thing that's interesting. Like that he doesn't kiss her, and he's like goodbye. So it's like it. Well, it's a very. Uh, they leave I, it like there's going to be sequels. Yeah, you yeah. know, what I mean, I wouldn't even be surprised if that's a Carpenter thing, not even in the original script, because that's a very like. I don't know. That's a very Hawks, like very like golden age of Hollywood romantic hero, comedy. Like, aren't you going to kiss her? No. <laughs> Could you see see that? Um, 
uh, like I said, uh, uh, my wife and I are huge into like uh, Peter Lorre's Mr. Moto series or Sidney Toller, Warner Olin's Charlie Chan's. So it has a lot of the elements of that or Warner Olin playing Fu Manchu or Drums of Jeopardy. Can you see this movie being done in that era of the 30s or 40s and having like say a Cary Grant play Jack Burton? Can you see that? Or like a Catherine Hepburn playing? Like if we were to transpose, because this basically is a Saturday morning serial you know, uh, back then the reporters looking for the story. We're going to Chinatown. Crazy stuff's happened in Chinatown. There's some fantasticalness of it that we all get on board with. It seems very much like it is one of those. You know, you can have like a you know Peter Laurie in there as a you know yeah, like probably yeah. playing an Asian and well, I mean, what Cary I think, Grant. I think what's he, I mean, I think one of the things that's uh, on you know on just that you reminded me of this. I mean, I'll get I'll answer your question in a second, but. It's probably like the largest assembly of actual Asian actors for like an American, yeah, film. I'd say maybe I'd, ever yeah. or like in a long because even like it's sad to say even like Raiders oh. of the Lost Ark has like guys in makeup Play to Asians. look Asian. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, yeah, it, yeah. Like at the bar at the beginning when he goes and gets it's like oh it's yeah, not like really real. this is like 1980. You <laughs> couldn't find you couldn't find an Asian guy to play that part. <laughs> Uh, they've always done that with Charlie Chan for for better or for worse, but he's. he's I mean, but that was. I mean, that was. Yeah, it was time. a different time. Yeah. Um, and then those. I I know there's a huge argument uh, about it, but Charlie Chan and certainly to a certain extent, Mr. Moto are actually trying to break the stereotype because they're they're giving positive. They're showing Chinese in a positive, or Mr. Moto's Japanese in a positive light, as opposed to uh, Fu Manchu, who's. Uh, very nefarious character, and then that was the stereotype that every Chinese person or Chinaman, as they would say, was was this evil character. But yeah, yeah. aside from that, Fu Manchu is a freaking great character. Uh, Sax Romer, who wrote him. Uh, so uh, it's good to see pushing positive uh, yes. role models and stuff. But you're right, when you get to the 80s, it's like, there's no excuse for it. <laughs> you know, but I'd say nine out of ten of those Asian actors you all know. Yeah, there's yeah. Because there's only a certain surplus of yeah, Asian yeah. actors, you know, like so... feature You know, so actors. aside from Key Luke, who's not in this movie, who's, who's in Gremlins, you have all these other guys that you recognize, even, uh, what's his face, uh, Egg Sean, you know, like, Dirty Harry, you know, yeah, him, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> you know, the other guys. <laughs> That's the funniest. You know, there's so many, there's so many great lines that, you know, I don't, I didn't, I hadn't seen the movie in probably, uh over 15 years but, but uh, we used to always say these yeah no yeah. black blood of the earth you mean oil no black blood <laughs> of the earth you know, you know it's like there's only one line but it well i mean it's a it's a movie that it's hard not to have a like a warm place in your heart for on a nostalgic level um you know we grew up in the 80s so we were probably like the perfect age for that movie to come out um but to answer your question before like toad i mean like in terms of like yes you could take obviously it would be a, a different movie but um you could put this movie in like the 30s and it would be similar enough I, I i agree i mean i think that has a lot to do with carpenter and his love for that era of movies and specifically howard hawks um we're also coming off of the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, serials were huge then because uh, they they tried to resurrect. And I think it failed. Was um, Flash Gordon at the time? Yeah, yeah, that was a huge big buzz. And then you go again. You got yeah, no freaking. You get Max von Sydow playing an Asian. <laughs> uh, so you have a lot of. And then 
I swear, like, not Dune. Dune isn't really a serial, but I feel like there are a couple other serials because of the success of Star Wars and because of the success of Indiana Jones. They're like, okay, maybe we can make a Remo Williams The Adventure <laughs> Begins. Where did the adventure go? You know, uh, you know that's ball, another one that ballsy, we need to... Ballsy move to name it that. That's another one we need I to do. I believe there was a 80s sun, Sunday, Disney Sunday night movie that was a straight-to-TV, not starring Fred Ward, Sequel? Sequel. Oh, get out of town. Uh, that we should totally find and wow. do. <laughs> we'll do them both. We'll do them back to back. But yeah. There's a lot. Remo Williams. They without getting into knows. anything and in going on a sidetrack, there's a lot of those Disney Sunday Again, night movies that we can, Joel, uh, we can do. Joel Gray. Really? As an Asian guy. And <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, because he plays the... Uh, he I think there was an the, Academy... He won like an Academy Award the, for playing an Asian guy. He plays the Je- Jedi... Uh, he plays like the Jedi... Like the sensei. The yeah. sensei who trains... Um, what's his face? Remo Williams. Yeah, um, didn't Carpenter... He got a Saturn Award, didn't he, for the soundtrack for this movie, for, for Big uh, Big Trouble? He, he won some sort of uh, Saturn or... He may have. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a great score. I mean, it's not his most recognizable score. Um... I mean, you know, if I think Carpenter, obviously, initially think of Halloween score, or, you know, or The Thing. Um, for some reason, I mean, obviously, I was talking about it earlier. I think of In the Mouth of Madness. Right, yeah. Very much, I think, of uh, Assault of Beastie 30, They Live. But I feel like some of his best scores are the ones that you don't really think about, which is like Big Trouble in Little China. His Prince of Darkness score is amazing. His his Christine score is amazing, yeah. but those are the ones that like kind of fly under the radar. Um, but they those are three scores that totally you know, like you if you into like film music and especially horror film music, you really got to sit down and listen to those scores. So they are beautiful. You know, I, when I talked to Claudio Simonetti from Goblin, and we were talking about John Carpenter, there's a lot of Dario Argento stuff. Goblin, that's a connection for yeah, horror films. Yeah, Goblin Goblin did uh, tons of. Italian horror scores. Didn't they do most they, notably for Dario Argento. And then they do um, Romero's Dawn of the Dead, the they, they sequel d- to Night. They did the Italian. They version? did Argento's European cut. See, a lot of people don't know about this little uh, um, brand of trickery. And, but Romero liked the music so much that he then put some of it into uh, like a second run of Dawn of the Dead. There was a original cut for Dawn of the Dead that was the American version and then there was a real wasn't there a really it was a chopped down they call it the Argento cut for overseas. It's to be honest I like it. I like it even better. You do. Um, oh because it cuts out a lot of that mid second act stuff with them just more, around It takes the out a lot of the comedy um, it takes out a lot of the character development that Romero you know Wanted, you know, because he wrote the script. Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, it's only like 16 minutes shorter, but it really streamlines the whole thing. And it's a much more brutal, action driven movie than Romero's cut. The only thing that's not in the European cut, which is fucking crazy that it's not in there, is the zombie getting his top the of head his head chopped the off by the helicopter blade. That's the only thing that's in there that you're like, why the fuck would he cut that out? Yeah. But. Um, it wasn't like he was trying to make it pass any censors because all the other no, stuff. No, for some reason he just didn't like it. But uh, what was common practice in Italy is they would sometimes release a movie in Italy and either recut it, but even more so they would rescore it for some reason. Um, so there are several movies that Goblin rescored that were either American or Australian movies or something. And they were allowed to do this by the... By the I, think, I guess it was part of the distribution, European distribution That's weird because deal. you would think that would cost more money and 
the studios would say no because they'd have to pay these people to rescore. But know? Dawn of the Dead is one of those movies. But so uh, you talked to Claudio Simonelli from so, Goblin. So I, I talked to Claudio Simonelli from Goblin, and we started talking about John Carpenter. Um, Carpenter. There are people that say, and even Claudio Simonetti is under the impression that Car- Carpenter has said that um, Goblin's score for uh, Deep Red, Profondo Rosso, Ugh. was very influential on Halloween's score. Um, when I talked to Carpenter, he didn't seem to imply that. He did seem to imply that... You asked him directly? Yeah. Uh, but he did seem to imply that he had seen Suspiria and that he loved Goblin's music, loved Claudio Simonetti's music, but he didn't make any kind of direct correlation. But when I was talking to Claudio Simonetti about George Carpenter, about George Carpenter, about John <laughs> Carpenter, um, he puts it kind of best in that he talks about Carpenter's music as like, Carpenter, in the Carpenter score, you can hear two notes, and it does more for you than, like two notes on a synthesizer, can do more for you as a as a viewer and do more for the movie than like the London Symphony Orchestra hmm. or like a, a huge or like a John Williams like there's something about the minimalism the, like yeah and it's like the way he uses the music it's like um you know, I, I've often ta- you ta- I've often said this about like blues music. It's not like what you do, it's like how you do it. Like, you know, I would never say that, you know, you could never look at like Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes and put them up against like Muddy Waters as a guitar player or whatever. I mean, it's totally it's like apples and oranges. But yeah. at the same time, it's like Muddy Waters may never be as proficient or as good of a guitar player as you know, like Randy Rhodes, but Randy Rhodes could never do what Muddy Waters was able to do with so little. Um, and that's the way Carpenter's music is in a lot of ways. It, it That minimalistic, it's just like there's really something about it. And um, in recent months and, re- and this year, I've been listening to tons of uh, uh, film scores, especially horror movies and John Carpenter and tons of Goblin and a lot of like Fabio Frizzi who did a lot of other Italian stuff and Carpenter's music is by far the most repetitive and the most minimalistic out of all the stuff I've been listening to which makes it maybe not the best to listen as like I'm going to sit there and listen to a record of it. I was going to say, is it, is it the most accessible though, in the sense of that it's going to allure you or bring you closer to it? Is it? But I think it's. I don't. It. it it's repetitive, so it can get kind of boring unless you're like really fucking into it, like I am. I can imagine people being like, "How many times can I listen to like the, <laughs> yeah, or like <laughs> dun, his, dun, dun, his dun, dun, piano, <laughs> his like repeating piano line of the fog, dun, 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 dun. you know, it it just like repeats." Um, but in a way, it's most minimalistic. It's the most repetitive, but at the same time, it's the w- music that I think supports the movie the best out of all the music I've been listening to recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you pair when you pair the particular soundtrack up with the parent movie, they they work beautifully together when they're married. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I mean, and that's I think one of the uh, successes where Carpenter's able to create that suspense by having certainly knowing his craft and being able to edit or shoot a scene a certain way to build suspense, but he's also able to put the music in that actually, like you're saying, a couple notes will just do what, say, uh, you know, John Williams or, or Bernard Herrmann, you know, would have to do, and not not to in any way <laughs> yeah, no, take away just, from what they did. Yeah, it's a totally different animal. Yeah. But know. he just manages to find the right two notes. Yeah. 
and like with the r- like spaced out, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, it's almost the, like the, the pauses right are just like 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 the pauses are just important, like the space in between or the. It just you know. works, and in that way, he's kind of like a musical genius. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody could do a John Carpenter score. Hmm. Like people could try, but nobody could really pull That's it. That's a off good the idea to, to make a horror movie that hire Carpenter to do your <laughs> soundtrack. You He's know, totally you know. up, to, you know, for it. I asked, them, <laughs> I asked him if he would continue uh, consider scoring other people, like some for somebody else, and he said, "Oh yeah, I would definitely do it." He was supposed to do it, I think, for uh, Planet Terror. Oh yeah, yeah, the Robert Rodriguez's half of Grindhouse. Uh, he was actually going to do it, but then. Um, just like scheduling conflicts didn't work, and then Car- and then Robert Rodriguez ended up using just actual a lot of actual just Carpenter scores oh. from previous. I always thought that, that was a good done. idea, you know. Uh, you know, so you have someone that profoundly just put them all together, like taking all like a Lalo Schifrin and just throw them all. You know, you have the <laughs> well, best. I mean, Tarantino. Uh, yeah, he has become yeah. known for not just I mean, obviously known for popular music, but to just take cues from other movies yeah. now. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he certainly. Does, I mean, he does it brilliantly. He did that with the Kill Bills, and then with the the last one, he did the. Uh, did it for it was Django. Glorious Black Masters, also. Yeah, uh, even uh, sometimes against the wishes of like Ingo Morricone was pissed, like he's using it wrong. You, know, <laughs> you can never use it again, you know. Which hey, you know what he's he maybe knows what he's talking about. Um, I think uh, before we wrap up, it's interesting too that uh, I watched it with my wife, and my wife hadn't seen it, and you said you watched it. Uh, for me, at least, the w- the jokes still worked. A lot of yeah, the, yeah. the funny moments uh, held up. As a lot of times when you watch a movie, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. I'm like, eh, it's cheesy. But a lot of the, the, the buffoonery of the Jack Burton, Kurt Russell character held up with him doing, you know, it always seems like he's about to, he's the first one to try to, to go out there to want to fight, but then something happens where he shoots in the ceiling, knocks himself out, or he, or he stabs the, the, the guy in the, in the samurai outfit, and then he gets stuck on him. So half the, the battle he's trying to get the samurai off of him or he's trying to get the clip he, he you know his bullet gets stuck in the chamber and he's trying to get the 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 the, the mac 10 ready to go and then everything's done yeah so well there's <laughs> even the, the funny exchange where they have like three guns oh he's <laughs> that's another great little moment that you see and they just pass him around they end up with the same gun and he's, like, tra- he's like uh he's got a pistol jack burton has a pistol uh wang chi has like uh some kind of like not an uzi but like, like a, a tech nine or something and then um the guy's a eddie eddie has a shotgun and <laughs> Jack Burton goes to uh, Wang Chi. He's like, "I'll trade you." He's like, "Okay." And then, and then he just ta- and then Wang Chi just takes the shotgun away from Eddie and gives Eddie the the pistol. Um, it's just it's a funny like visual. Yeah, joke. They, they all go around in the circle. It's it's very good, but it's it's interesting that after all these years, the the the, the hokiness it, it holds up and it's still funny. The, the moments that are supposed to be deemed comic relief actually are comic relief, and they don't come off as silly. Yeah, you yeah. Know, when they still generate a laugh to someone who hasn't seen it. And, at all, I, I think it, it it succeeds in a certain way. Um, I, I overall, I thought the movie was really good. I thought it really uh, holds up, and uh, it's in, it's interesting. Hopefully, I know it has found a whole new, uh, I guess, um, fan base now as as we get older. But hopefully, it'll it'll still hold up and be a you know a good a good cult classic like in the sense it, to me like I said I oh, I think it will I mean it did, like it's it survived this long I mean I think I think um, it's just it's a fun movie I mean it got enough airplay back in the day in terms of television yeah um, it was always on but it just seems like it's right for sequels to me like I, I mentioned the big Lebowski before 
to me, it's like the AE's version of the Big Lebowski. Like, it is a movie you watch. If you're into it and you watch it, you'll pick up on more stuff, and the funnier it gets. And yeah, it seems yeah. like that is certainly... And it's, it ends where he's like, you know, he's going on to his next job, and he's on that... He's on the ham radio. He's on the CB saying, like, you know, for all you out there, and, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just setting up the next movie, and I'm surprised... Uh, evidently, they are toying with the. Well, they had a video game come out, which I thought was interesting for the Commodore. So I, I love to try to track that video game <laughs> yeah, down and yeah. see how good that is when the movie came out. But they said they're now in the works in 2009 to make a comic book, which I don't think really came out. And then now there, in 2014. There is a comic book they're on issue four. They are. Currently. Because that started in June. Uh, it's like Big Trouble in Little China, the continuing adventures of Jack Burton. Is it? Um, have you seen it? Is it any way? Is it supposed to be? Look, is it supposed to be Kurt Russell esque character? Yeah, it definitely looks like all the same characters. It takes up, like the first panel is him on the truck, on the way out, giving the that speech at the end of the movie. So it takes up exactly where that leaves off. That's the art is, you know, look, you know, the art's okay. It's yeah. but it's not as you know. It's it's for Boom Studios, which is you know not as big as Marvel or whatever, so it's clearly not as big of a budget. It's an independent. Um, the covers are cool. The cover art, cover art is the cover art's really nice. Um, the first issue had like a limited edition, like alternate cover uh, variant, um, what they call an incentive cover uh, that you can probably still find at certain comic book stores for maybe. I don't know. You could probably buy it for like 20 bucks. But yeah. um, the covers are neat. The art is okay. Um, I haven't had a chance to really get into them and start reading them. Um, but it is called Big Trouble in Little China. We were talking before. Uh, at some point, it obviously, the movie didn't make enough money to uh, warrant like a big a theatrical tr- uh, sequel. But there was at one point talk of doing a TV sequel um, called More Trouble in Little China. Um I don't know. Who would have played him? Would have been like a Roddy Piper, or, you know? <laughs> who would have played Jack know. Burton on the small screen? Yeah, I I mean, I'm sure Kurt Russell would have Scott Bakula. <laughs> well, prior to Quantum? I don't know. I don't know what year it would have come out. So. Uh, that's interesting because Scott Bakula played Randy Jurgensen, who's near and dear to the Podwitz prior to, in a TV movie prior to, um, to, to Quantum Leap. So that would have been interesting. Or, or like Richard Dean Anderson. <laughs> You know, when he's moonlighting off MacGyver. I could have seen that. You know, I mean, it would have been, it's, it's, it's so much, you got to get a guy who's actually, you know, it, I think it takes, a, you need to have a really good actor there. You know, and there's a lot of, uh, oh, you know, Campbell, 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 Campbell could have I was been just going to say, there's a know, lot of parallels to Briscoe County, to Briscoe or County which we, you know, we, we did, we talked a lot about Briscoe County in our, in our sidecast about Bruce Campbell, yeah, uh, but the there's, in terms of feel, um, tone, there's a very similar feel to to like the adventures of briscoe county jr yeah you really need a good actor who's not gonna it's it's funny because you think you think that you'd need less but i think you need an actor who's so good he makes it look effortless and he makes himself look like a buffoon but it's not done and it's done in such an intelligent way it looks like it's yeah, the yeah. character as opposed it's just like bad acting and it needs to be he needs to be charming yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, you like Jack Burton. You, yeah, you're yeah. rooting for Jack Burton. He's an idiot, but you, you love him to death. And he's, he, you know, he, he, he has him. He's basically like that '40s, uh, you know, Hollywood man, where he's the conservative. He has his his principles, his ideals, not necessarily conservative in the sense of political politics, but he's just he believes in America. Because don't they even toast America? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know. So it's like they believe. You know, he has his principles, and that's just like he's just a good guy. He's the he's the the good sheriff in a bad town, you know, no matter what, if the cards are down, he's still going to have your back, you know, and that's, that's Jack Burton and his, and his, his pork chop express, you know? So, um, 
I loved it. I think it's highly recommendable, and I think this is something we need to start doing. We did it in the last Punisher cast. Uh, do you recommend it? Uh, do you think it holds up? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, holds up... I don't know. I mean, we before we started, before we hit record, I talked about how there are some things that are... There are certain scenes and stuff, like uh, certain dialogue exchanges and stuff, that are just not that great. But for... Like a, just a, a weird, fun, like roller coaster, good time. Like I feel like you're going to be hard pressed to find a better movie. It's it's for a that. great Saturday night sleepover movie. <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's a great. You know, you're not looking for something that. Uh, I mean, I would love to like show it to like an eight year old. Like I would love to see like an eight like a group of eight year old kids like watch it and see like what their reaction yeah. would be because I have a feeling that it would totally like transport them into like you know movie land just the way like it would it did us you know when we when we saw it when it's we were the little. it's that era which I don't know if you can ever get back that last Starfighter they very much that little pocket of those movies like Remo Williams and all that which for better or for worse you know they're very they're very good I I think it was great I I, I recommend it. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's interesting to see if you bring it to a younger audience. Certainly yeah. s- someone who, again, like we said in the last cast, who's, say, 25, or what you're saying, like a, a kid who's single digits, eight or nine, well, how, how a, would they take it? Yeah, I mean, like, a buddy of mine who I uh, work with on occasion, um, he and I would sometimes talk about, like, Escape from New York, and he really likes Escape from L.A. Uh, I haven't seen that since it came out on for some For some reason. Um Better than Escape from New York. Yeah, he loves Escape from LA. Oh, oh, oh. Um, Everybody he's has got, their own. He's got odd, he's got odd tastes. Um, but I talk, I said, look, man, you got to see Big Trouble in a Little Child. He had never seen it, and he saw it. And he came back, and he just fucking loved it. Yeah. So I mean, he was like in you know probably mid twenties at the time. So uh, you know, for, for 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 the right audience, I think it's it's a hell of a good time. It's definitely one of those movies you don't have to think too hard about if you're looking for a light movie that you don't have to really. It's not really going to be very heavy. Uh, perfect for a, a sleepover, <laughs> a Saturday <laughs> night sleepover. It's definitely recommendable. But um, well, thank you very much for listening to us. Uh, we are found at uh, check us out at SaturdaySleepovers.podwits.com. Uh, we can also be found at uh, Blake and I have a sidecast we do regularly at Podwits.com, where we talk about really anything under the sun, movies, music, culture, uh, anything related. We profile actors, we profile genres, we profile Dick Smith, Dick Smith video <laughs> stores. Um, we do time travel. We have a whole slew of sl- uh, sidecasts, which you can also check out at SaturdaySleepovers.Podwits.com. There's a link over there to, to the Podwits that has all of our sidecasts. Uh, Jay Blake, you have a new album out. I do. A blues album, Jay Blake's When You Coming Home. It's uh, blues music, blues and rock. It's on iTunes, Amazon. If you're interested in checking that out, very good. Uh, you do a couple very you, good. You covers. co-wrote the opening track. Uh, yes, I did co-wrote <laughs> the opening track. Uh, co-write it, but I, I it's I, I think I don't even think that's one of the best uh, s- uh, songs on the album. Uh, to, to all honest, uh, I, I har- wholeheartedly recommend it. Please check it out. Uh, it's very good. Um, if you like the blues, if you like rock, or you just like uh, a good original album. Uh, and you can always check us out at podwits.com. We both write for Podwits. We have articles there. Uh, we're on iTunes. We're on uh, Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, soon we'll probably have uh, other elements for Saturday's uh, sleepovers, maybe a YouTube channel or a, uh, or a Twitter page of its own. So just keep coming back. Uh, thank you for listening to part two of uh, our Saturday night uh, movie sleepovers. 
And uh, please come back for more and tell a friend. So uh, until next time. Later.